Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. I want to point out that we'll be speaking with the Labour Secretary Eugene Scalia in just a few minutes, Alex Steele and Guy Johnson, with that interview on the current state of the American economic recovery. Also jobs, of course, uh, not such a pretty picture. Weekly jobless claims coming in today. They did fall, but still coming in at 1,480,000 initial jobless claims. That was down from 1.54 million, but not as big of a drop as economists had estimated, Paul. The insured unemployment rate fall as well, but to 13.4%. I mean, it's a massive, massive number. No doubt the Labour Secretary will suggest that it would have been even more massive were it not for everything that the government did. But it's it's very hard to, to look at those yeah. numbers and, and not feel like there's a big problem out there. There really is. And I think the, one of our guests earlier mentioned that it was you know 14 weeks into this and we're still having these types of uh, n- numbers. All right, let's send it over now to Bloomberg TV and Alex Steele and Guy Johnson with the Labour Secretary. Do you help black employment? Well, um, the uh, economy before the coronavirus hit, of course, was uh, the single best economy that uh, African-Americans had uh, experienced uh, in in this country. Uh, It was uh, an economy that was uh, great for uh, Americans all around with unemployment that hit a Um, 50-year low, uh, job creation was more than three times uh, what had been predicted when the president came in. But uh, unemployment for African-Americans was particularly low. uh, And that was one of the really great achievements of that economy. Uh, So I think looking forward... I was going to say, Mr. Secretary, undoubtedly correct, but no one expects us to get back to where we were. So when you take a look at, say, wages uh, uh, for for black employees are lower than whites and the unemployment rate is continually higher uh, for those in the community, you you need to fix that. So how do you do that? Um, Well, you know, Alex, uh, going forward, the same policies that uh, delivered the record low unemployment that we had until the virus came are going to be a policies that matter going forward. That's uh, uh, lightening the tax burden on American business. It's eliminating unnecessary regulatory burdens. That read, led to uh, great job creation. And as you know, it also uh, led to uh, wage increases that were greater for people in lower income brackets. So those are all very good things for uh, African-Americans. I think a couple other things going forward. Uh, One is the president's proclamation on Monday uh, suspending uh, immigrant workers until the end of the year to provide a buffer to give American workers uh, a greater opportunity to get back into the workforce. I think that's going to help uh, African-American workers. It's going to help uh, the economy more broadly. And then we have reforms that we're going to be looking to make to some of those immigrant worker programs, too, that I think are going to deliver benefits across the board. The other thing I'd mention is the USMCA uh, goes into effect uh, next week. And uh, that was one of the president's great achievements earlier this year, bipartisan legislation that could create as many as 500,000 new manufacturing jobs in this country. And that's going to be a boon, again, for all working Americans. Mr. Secretary, Guy Johnson in London. Why does keeping smart people out of the United States help the U.S. economy? Well, uh, 
the uh, change that we've made is to give smart Americans uh, a better opportunity to get uh, jobs in an economy where we've made uh, we've made progress uh, over the last few weeks uh, with uh, two and a half million jobs added in May. We know we've add a lot of jobs since then, but we've still got too many uh, Americans out of work. We want to give them uh, an opportunity to get back to work. Uh, if, uh, in fact, uh, a business can't find an American worker and there's a critical need to be filled, there will be an exceptions process uh, under the president's order. But, Guy, long term, uh, we're going to reform this program precisely so it does a better job of bringing super talented uh, workers into this country rather than low wage workers who are competing with Americans and undercutting uh, American workers' wages. Can we pivot and talk a little bit about today's claims data? Sure. Um, the, the indications are from, from this, this high frequency data that, that what we're seeing in the US economy is a stabilization at a relatively high level of unemployment. Um, do you think we're starting to see a more realistic kind of view of what is happening emerging from the data? Because up until now, we've seen a very strong bounce back. Do you think we're now starting to see evidence that that bounce back is slowing down? I don't read uh, this data that way, Guy, although I think it's a fair question because the initial claims number was a uh, a bit higher than had been projected. The number that really caught my attention was the continuing claims, that is, the people that are remaining on unemployment. And that dropped by um, about uh, uh, 767,000, a big drop. But there was also a correction for the prior week. You put them together, and we've got a million fewer people on unemployment uh, today than we thought we had uh, a week ago. Uh, that's, that's progress. And uh, the big report, as you know, will be a week from today when we put out our uh, June jobs report. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will show uh, really significant progress along the lines of what we, we saw in May. I think that will be a more reliable indicator than, you know, initial claims are just claims filed. They're not necessarily claims that are going to be accepted by the state. So, it, even if we do get a, a better number uh, for jobs Friday, it's still going to be bad. It'll be a less bad kind of number. Um, and at the same time, at the end of this month, that additional assistance in the unemployment checks from the CARES Act wears off. Anecdotally, Mr. Secretary, I have friends who literally will not be able to live without that extra money. What are you going to do for them? Well, uh, Alex, you're right. The uh, $600 benefit uh, that was in the CARES Act, which was a really important benefit uh, that the president and Congress provided when the economy was uh, being closed down in March, that expires at the end of July. Um, but we're going to be in a very different situation at the end of July. Uh, let's see what the report shows us next week. But we know the economy is reopening. We're, we're not in a situation anymore where government authorities are, right. are saying, essentially, you can't go to work. So I don't think that $600 benefit is the right uh, policy in an opening economy uh, come August. So I wonder if there's a happy medium, because specifically I'm talking about the services industry, because if you're a waiter and you're going back and you work on tips, you're not going to be getting back to where you were pre-COVID. So your tips might go from $100 a day to $50 a day. So you're losing that money. Would you think about an income subsidy, for example, like France is doing? President Macron said something very similar today, working with unions to help subsidize worker pay for it to compensate from the loss they're missing. Can you do that? Well, uh, something that we already have is uh, what we call a short time compensation. Uh, the idea is that uh, a workforce can be brought back 
but maybe not all work full time. They, they're brought back on a part time basis and they get a blend of uh, pay and unemployment benefits. That's, that's being done some now. And uh, I think that's, that's a concept to look, look at. Obviously, we have uh, continuing state unemployment benefits are available. And we'll take a look at uh, whether there are any uh, federal approaches that uh, remain necessary. But you have that state benefit. You have the opportunity for uh, short-time compensation. And we're focused most of all on growing the economy again, on creating those jobs. The president did such an extraordinary job of that uh, up until the virus came. Uh, we, we, we have no reason to think that the economic fundamentals of uh, the country are substantially different when they were just a few months ago. So I'm most focused now on uh, reinforcing the policies that led to record job creation and getting people back to work r rather than um, uh, focusing uh, so intently on the unemployment system itself. Mr. Secretary, there are large parts of the United States where the hospitalization count is now rising and rising dramatically. Uh, we're seeing it in Texas. We're seeing it in Florida. We're seeing it in California. Did these places reopen too quickly? Is there too much emphasis being placed on reopening the economy at this point, at the expense potentially of public health? Well, Guy, I don't think it's quite right to say that there are large parts of the country that are uh, seeing these flare-ups, but we are, we are seeing some flare-ups in parts of, of large states, and it certainly uh, has to be and is being taken seriously. Uh, no, we did not uh, reopen too early. Uh, we knew that uh, as we opened uh, that there would be some increase in cases. Uh, we know far better now how to deal with this virus than we did two, three months ago, and we have a much greater capability to address it in terms of the tests that are available, uh, ventilator capacity, and, and, and all of that. So these, these flare-ups are serious matters to take a look at. Uh, the virus is out there. Uh, Americans do need to continue to exercise discipline uh, so that we can stay open. Um, but you look across the country as a whole, the reopening is going well. It's going safely. Uh, but we will continue to focus on these flare-ups as they occur. Mr. Secretary, it's, it, it's really hard to agree with you on that, though. When you have Texas, uh, California, and Florida, I mean, Texas suspended all elective surgeries. They're looking at reaching hospital bed capacity in certain areas. And Houston is a huge medical center, and they're having some serious problems. Uh, the government seems to no longer have control over shutdowns or not. If I'm living in Houston, I'm probably not leaving my house and I'm not going shopping. So how does that then trickle through to the labor market? You're going to have more layoffs potentially or second round layoffs uh, just because people just want to stay home themselves because these are huge states with a huge rise in cases. Well, I, Alex, I, I got to disagree with you. I think you're, um, th these flare-ups are serious. I think you're uh, exaggerating uh, the current situation. The local authorities are well aware of it. Uh, they're looking to address it. Uh, we uh, here uh, in the administration are in contact with them and, and looking for ways to help. But again, you look across the country as a whole, uh, the reopening's gone very successfully. And uh, what's happening in these uh, specific locations is a, a reminder of the importance of discipline, of being careful about the virus, that it's still out there, uh, it's not a judgment on the reopening as a whole. Uh, to pivot away from what we've just been talking about, Mr. Secretary, um, let's talk a little bit about investing and how um, public money, public pension money via funds should be invested. You have written that the profit motive is ultimately 
the final arbiter of whether or not should decisions should be made versus one investment, sorry, versus another investment. Why is impact investing wrong? Why is ESG investing wrong, particularly at a time when we see such need for changes uh, in the way we approach the climate and changes in the way we approach society? We started this conversation talking about Black Lives Matter. Well, Guy, uh, you're referring to a rule that the Labor Department put out uh, earlier this week uh, regarding uh, so-called ESG investing in the, in the context of, of a, a private pension plans here in the U.S. And uh, uh, obviously people uh, uh, like the opportunity to, as I put it in an op-ed I wrote, to do good while also doing well financially. But uh, some questions certainly have been raised about some of the ESG rating systems out there. How reliable, thorough are they really? You see systems that uh, one, one rating is high for a company, another rating system rates it low. There have been questions raised yeah. by the SEC about how some of these uh, funds are, are being promoted. The, the key uh, under uh, our law for uh, pension plans is simply that pension plans are to be managed with one goal. That's maximizing Americans' retirement savings. That's a really, really good social objective. It shouldn't be compromised uh, by uh, fiduciaries to yep. those retirees who are pursuing uh, political ends that cost those retirees money. That's what our proposed rule addresses. Okay. Interesting in the light of what the Business Roundtable is kind of moving towards, but we have to leave the conversation there. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much indeed. Eugene Scalia, the U.S. Labor Secretary. This is Bloomberg. That was U.S. Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia speaking with Bloomberg anchors Alex Steele and Guy Johnson on a wide-ranging conversation from all things from the pandemic and the impact on the economy to the current state of the jobs market. Again, we had jobless claims today came in a little bit higher than expected. So uh, really weighing in on the employment situation and the economic uh, uh, situation within the U.S. Uh, right now. Let's pivot right now and talk to our good friend Barry Ritholtz. He's founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of Masters of Business. Barry, what was your takeaway from the discussion with Secretary Scalia? Kind of shocking to hear the uh, Department of Labor uh, secretary doesn't seem to know what the word fiduciary means. I kind of <laughs> had to rewind that and do a double take. His, his take on ESG is, is malignantly malinformed. The, the data on this shows that this has performed at least as well as other actively managed accounts, especially over the past couple of years. And if people want to express their views through their portfolios, that's up to the individual investor. The fiduciary, the advisor who is working with the client, their job is to put the client's best interest first. It's kind of shocked the way he spit that word out uh, as if it was acid in, in his mouth. You know, the studies have shown that having non-fiduciaries advise on 401ks and other retirement accounts cost $17 billion a year. If he's really concerned about maximizing investors' retirement savings, enforce the fiduciary rule and make everybody who advises on that, that account have to put the investors' first best interest first. It's a really simple solution. I was shocked by the double talk I just heard. I mean, it's so interesting because obviously the Labor Secretary can 
propose whatever he wants, right, Barry? But this is something that would be pretty detrimental, I think, to a lot of workers out there at a time when there is, you know, an, 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 a skyrocketing unemployment rate and initial jobless claims that just are not coming down fast enough and, and so much uncertainty out there. You know, I, I don't want to let my politics get in the way of, of responding to the Labour Secretary, but I have a full dashboard of COVID-19 data, and I look at this every day along with all the other data I, I run through, and I don't know if he's looking at the data, but, but what we're seeing is an increase um, in testing and an even larger increase in infection rate, and the whole Sun Belt is is doing poorly. Look at RT.Live shows you the, the um, R1 measures of state by state. You have 33 states that are still showing a greater contagion and the numbers going in the wrong directions. The early states, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, their numbers are coming down, uh, the early infection states from international travel, mostly from Europe. But now we're seeing the states that reopened. Look, the facts are a lot of these states ignored the White House guidelines, ignored the CDC guidelines. It's hard to look at the data and say, this is going great. The reason the market got shellacked earlier this week, at least in in some narratives tellings, is because, gee, we're not even waiting for a second wave. The first wave hasn't run its course and the numbers are heading in the wrong direction. Florida, California, Texas, that, those are both red, mm-hmm. blue, and purple states. The virus doesn't care about your politics. It's going to infect people when given an opportunity. And we're continuing to give COVID-19 an opportunity to spread. We, we are not doing this well compared to other countries. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So, Barry, given, again, that shellacking you mentioned earlier in this week, I agree that in large part due to some of the virus news, it seems like, you know, I'm just wondering how we play this again. I mean, is it just steady as she goes and recognize that this is probably going to be a longer pull than maybe we had initially hoped for? So we've kind of gone full circle. The initial fear was this is a multi-year process to get a treatment, get a vaccine, develop herd immunity. We're, we're, we're nowhere near herd immunity yet. You need well over 50% of people to either have a vaccine or exposure to, to get that. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of got very enthusiastic. There is lots and lots of positive news coming out in terms of treatment and vaccine testing and and the amount of treatment we're doing, those have been moving in the right direction, but they are also being confronted by a lot of, um, let's call it lazy and unfocused behavior that can lead to the spread of this. The, The other factor that I think is important from a market perspective, not from how rapidly we're spreading the disease, is simply at a certain point, markets and investors lose their ability to get shocked. And, and, and once you cross a, a World War II number of American deaths, uh, you know, a lot of the horrific, stunning shock of that, you become somewhat inured to it. And so, hey, the good news is the death rate is going down partly because a lot of the spread of COVID is taking place amongst a younger and younger cohort. The average age of infection is going lower, um, but that's still dangerous. And you're, you're, remember, you're always on a two- to three-week lag from right. 
testing to infection to mortality. Well, and it's going down for now, but we're hearing today that, you know, Texas is overwhelmed and even the governor is coming out right. saying Houston. it's sweeping. Huge problem. Yeah. Houston, yeah, exactly. And, you know, obviously with people on ventilators, you know, you don't want to to forecast it, but it would seem more likely than not that there will be more deaths in Texas. Barry, you know, are market participants looking to the next presidential cycle? And are they assuming that no matter who it is, that it doesn't really matter because the Federal Reserve is in there and there's plenty of backstopping of this market and it won't change no matter who the next president is? That's always an interesting question. You know, the, the traditional wisdom has, has been for a long time that markets like a, uh, a divided government, one party has the Congress, the other party has the the White House, and everybody has to reach across the aisle to, um, to work together. Um, I, I think that that's sort of a glib overstatement, and, and we do all have a tendency to put too much emphasis on what the White House or, or Congress has done, for the most part, markets are going to do what they're going to do. The economy is going to do what it's going to do. There is very little correlation between between the two. It certainly feels that way on a day-to-day basis. I haven't seen any indication that that the market is um, is discounting one side or the other winning. Whenever I read that, it tends to be filled with people's personal bias, and they take what the market is doing and somehow craft it into a narrative. Um, I, I had a little disagreement with uh, my friend Jim Cramer on, on Twitter yesterday, who, who said the 2% fall in markets had to do with Biden's uh, increase in, in ratings. It's like, wait, did, this market is up 40% while the incumbent was in free fall. Why are you picking on Wednesday as your indicator? Isn't that a little bit of a personal bias there? Jim who? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Barry, thank you so much. It's always great to talk to Barry Riddles, who doesn't pull his punches and always has the smart take on what's going on in the market and in political life and uh, generally in investing. Don't forget to listen to his Masters in Business podcast. Just another brilliant episode week over week over week. So thank you for that, Barry. Well, it is time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. First, I want to reiterate the Supreme Court decision that came out today, bolstering the government's ability to quickly deport people who enter the country illegally. Now, it's, again, siding with the Trump administration on that, a refusal to give asylum seekers a broad right to make their case to a federal judge. So Supreme Court rules against court access for asylum seekers. It's a separate story, but slightly related in that it goes to the tendency of President Trump to keep people out of the USA. He signed an order on Monday temporarily halting access to several employment-based visas and that affects hundreds of thousands of people seeking to work in the United States. These H-1B and H-4 visas used by tech workers primarily. Let's bring in someone who's written a great column on it. Take him of Bloomberg Opinion. Tay, why is this generally not a good idea for the United States and its productivity? So I see where Trump's trying to do. He's saying that by restricting this immigration, we're going to free up jobs for Americans. But we're needlessly risking one of the most important strategic assets that the U.S. has, which is the Silicon Valley innovation machine, which is the envy of the world. And it's where the most ambitious, best, brightest entrepreneurs and engineers around the world want to start their companies, which is here. And we're kind of risking this great thing that we have 
um, just needlessly. And if you look at the history of the Valley and American tech companies, um, Bond Capital had this great slide where 60% of the most highly valued U.S. tech companies were founded by either first-generation, second-generation immigrants. We're talking Google, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, even Apple uh, was second-generation with uh, Steve Jobs. So we're needlessly risking this most important thing. And already companies and countries like Canada, uh, the CEO of Shopify is going out there saying, oh, come to Canada instead. So I just, <laughs> I just argue that it's just very short-sighted to risk this thing that we have that's so great. Um, by limiting these visas. So, Tay, I know at one point, you know, these visas were so, so important for the technology companies because, quite frankly, America wasn't producing enough engineers, enough computer scientists. Is that still the case? Uh, I think, yes, that's still the case. When you talk to these companies, there's like, we don't have enough engineers. Um, Shopify says all the time that their biggest constraint is they're not finding enough talented computer engineers. So that's still a huge constraint. And when you see this avalanche of criticism in the last couple of days, we're talking Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, everyone's coming out saying they're up in arms. Even startups are saying this is, this is going to hurt our ability to recruit talent. Uh, it's going to hurt the economic recovery. Um, one of the other visas is uh, one of the other visa suspensions stops internal transfers uh, inside these companies where they can't move uh, managers around. So it just throws a wrench into the operation of these countries and also puts a massive amount of uncertainty when we're trying to recruit uh, the best and brightest people in the world. I mean, it seems to be almost, you know, a reflex on the part of President Trump. As soon as things are not going particularly well at the White House, he does something to, to, to block access to this country. Is there an argument for that going too far at some point and for these companies like Google and Facebook to just continue to set up operations abroad? I mean, their tax headquarters are usually in other places anyway. I mean, I agree with that. Like, if we can't bring people here, why all these companies are going to start international offices and try to recruit people to those international offices. But I, I think the bigger uh, problem is um, it might attract all these immigrants to go elsewhere, like go to Europe, go to China, and, or even stay where they are instead of coming to American companies and generating the in, uh, innovation that we need. And I mean, this is not a zero-sum game. This is not like, oh, we don't have this. We're, we're not going to, uh, it just takes up an American person's job. If we miss out on the next Google or NVIDIA, these are thousands and thousands of jobs and economic growth that we're not going to get. I mean, it's it's not a zero sum game. We just we can miss out on huge innovation, economic growth, and job creation uh, that we just will we'll totally miss out on. So, Tate, about thirty seconds. Are there other industries besides technology that are going to be impacted by this move? Yes, um, I think a lot of short term workers. There's uh, restrictions on camp counselors, all pairs. So this is not just tech. This is across the board. Uh, all these work visas are getting restricted for the rest of the year. And then green cards, the ban for green cards is extended to, uh, to the rest of the year, too. So this is just a vast kind of visa suspension for uh, immigration altogether. 
Well, and definitely some of the offices are closed these days anyway, both in the US and in other countries. So, you know, you could argue that it's just disruption. You know, it doesn't mean that all these people that are seeking it won't eventually get these visas, but for the moment they certainly won't. And, and, and we don't know if that will be reversed. So we don't know what the situation will be in coming months. It's uh, certainly fascinating. And, you know, I, I noticed the other day on Twitter, the Shopify CEO tweeting out, look, this might have happened, so then come come to Canada. Yeah, come We're to quite Canada. <laughs> right. I've seen that, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, open for business. Yeah, exactly. Tay, thank you. Always great to, to dig into these orders uh, in a lot more detail because there's usually a little more there than meets the uh, eye initially. That is, take him of Bloomberg Opinion. We do like to check in on Bloomberg Opinion at least once a day. Paul, would you... Go to another country if a tech company were to ask you? Well, I think if you're an immigrant, uh, you're looking for the best opportunity. Now, historically, that's been in the U.S., but uh, if, you know, I think you're absolutely going to be flexible there. Yeah, I mean, if you're moving anyway, why not move where uh, you're wanted, right? Well, what we've seen from this pandemic is the how it's really impacted pretty much every industry, every company out there in terms of how the executive team and the management uh, kind of think about their strategies, their daily workflows. Uh, a lot of companies and a lot of management teams have had to completely rethink uh, how they do their business and to get a sense of kind of what they're thinking about, what's on the top of their to-do list. We welcome Krishnan Ramanujam. He's a president and head of business and technology services at Tata Consulting Services. Krishna, thanks so much for joining us from Mumbai. Um, give us a sense of kind of, boy, I just can't imagine the conversations you're having with your clients, but what are the two or three things you're asking your clients or suggesting to your clients that they think about as they navigate uh, a new world order uh, impacted by this pandemic? Good morning, Paul. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I would probably talk about uh, three or four things, Paul. Uh, the first and foremost... Uh, we've been telling our clients about how uh, it is not it is extremely important for uh, transformation to be looked at, not as a one-time moonshot, but it's something that needs to be navigated on an ongoing basis. This is a phenomenon we call as perpetual transformation. Gone are the days you can take one moonshot at transformation and then live happily ever after. Uh, the technology and so many other factors are changing ever so often. Enterprises need to have the ability to navigate multiple transformations, smaller transformations, perpetually. That's a key capability. That's the first and perhaps the most important advice I give to my clients. The second one I talk about is about uh, location-independent workforces. There is this concept called Agile in our line of business. It's extremely uh, um, effective. And there, uh, there was a, a trend that said uh, the teams had to be co-located. But uh, over the last five years, TCS as a company has been a pioneer in terms of advocating how location independence is a key if Agile uh, has to realize its potential. And I think the pandemic has only uh, um, clearly demonstrated how prescient our uh, uh, forecast was around that. And the third thing that I would probably say is about uh, being borderless and collaborative. Uh, I think it's extremely clear that the winners of the future are going to be enterprises that can collaborate very well among themselves internally within the company as also with the partners. So there are many, many technologies that enable this, um, being data-centric, uh, leveraging cloud, and so on and so forth. Um, that in turn results in so many other benefits, but I'd probably stop at these three things. Perpetual transformation, location-independent workforce, and a collaborative, borderless mindset. Those are the three things I would pick as the top three advice uh, pieces of advice that I give to my clients. 
Krishnan, give us an idea of how you managed to relocate 90% of 450,000 employees to working remotely. I mean, that's a phenomenal exercise. Yes, thank you. It uh, still uh, looks so surreal to me. Um, if you ask me, uh, around mid to late March when this uh, pandemic hit us, Vani, uh, whether I'd be three months later or whether I'd be sitting comfortably in my home and uh, almost back to normal in terms of uh, working from a remote location, I'd have said the odds were completely against it. So I was extremely nervous, and so were all of my colleagues in the senior management team here at TCS. Uh, but um, TCS is very well known for its, um, you know, never-say-die attitude, and um, we loved the challenge. It did require uh, a heroic effort from many of our employees, but the fact is that everyone knew that all of us had to come together to make it happen. And as a company, we put uh, customer centricity as the top of our priority list. So unless we very, very quickly uh, became effective in terms of working from homes, many of the critical and essential services for our customers would suffer in a big way. Right? So once uh, that uh, pressure is on us, it's extremely important for us to make it happen. Also, the government here, the local authorities, uh, everybody cooperated as also our uh, people demonstrated an excellent sense of uh, responsibility and work ethic. So it required a huge effort, but uh, a combination of um, support from the government and the uh, huge uh, demonstration of work ethic and customer commitment from our employees. That's what made it happen. But so, to say so, that uh, today we are upwards of 96, 97% of our employees working from home is indeed remarkable. And all of this happened in a matter of about four to five weeks. So, Krishnan, in about 30 seconds, love to get your sense of kind of how things are in India right now. We're starting to see some resurgence in cases here uh, in the U.S. How is the virus uh, trending in India right now? In India, still the uh, curve is going up, but the encouraging news is that the test positivity rate is either flat or actually coming down. That is the important thing, that, which means two things, which means we are uh, testing enough, um, and the fact that the test positivity rate is not going up probably means that uh, it is not out of control. Of course, in a country like India with 1.3 billion people, the numbers are going to be staggering, of course. But uh, I think uh, so far, so good, uh, even though that's not to say what will happen tomorrow, Paul, as I'm sure you can imagine. Well, these days, we never know what to expect. Krishnan, thank you for joining us today. Fascinating company and a fascinating industry to be in right now. Krishnan Ramun Nujam, President of Business and Technology Services at Tata Consulting Services, coming to us from Mumbai there. And he, he obviously had to relocate you know, his staff, Paul, yeah, or the company staff, 450,000, but they're also dealing with everyone else's staff working remotely as well. So it really boggles the mind. He's been offering serious advice to CEOs during the pandemic, including you know, perpetual transformation. A lot of people get stuck during a time like this because there are so many logistical concerns, but really now is the time to be transforming and to continue to to move forward. Yeah, and technology, as Krishnan mentioned, is just a key part of that, uh, trying to help people remain uh, productive during this remote time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.